0: Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you quickly about a uh, pair of podcasts that I think you might enjoy in addition to the one you're about to listen to. The first is a new show from our friends at TED. It's called The TED Interview. And in it, the head of TED, Chris Anderson, interviews some of uh, TED's most compelling speakers to take a deeper dive into their big ideas. The first episode just came out, and uh, it's with Elizabeth Gilbert, who I interviewed a couple years ago for long form. And she and Chris talk about uh, discovering your most creative self. She also explores her own journey of discovery uh, over the last few months as she's reeled from the grief of losing her partner. You can find the TED interview on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this show, another show that you can find on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this is called Underdog. It is a uh, limited run series, a weekly show up through Election Day about the Texas Senate race between Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz. Um, I have been working on the show, full disclosure, and uh, it's been fascinating. The race is the most expensive Senate race in U.S. history. Uh, I'm sure you have seen lots of clips of Beto O'Rourke flying around the internet for the last couple of months uh we've got a bunch of people down there reporting on both campaigns you should check it out search for underdog or beto or Cruz or texas or i don't know go find the show it's pretty good uh here is our show
1: hello and welcome to the long form podcast i'm evan ratliff i am here with max linsky and aaron lammer hello Hey, you guys. Welcome back, Max. Uh, we missed you, uh, and uh, your absence uh, exposed us to uh, how hard it is to run the show, <laughs> which we did not know how to do. <laughs> got, you guys did fine. You got it out. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and, who's on the show this week?
2: Well, we should note that we are not in the studio right now. We're not now. in the studio. It might sound a little different. We're in an undisclosed location recording this introduction. For this episode, I got Elizabeth Colbert.
1: Hey, that's you've been talking about that for... I know we say this around a lot of episodes now. Well, this is the uh, this is the uh, we've been waiting for years season. of long Yeah, form. this year
2: we're getting the guests we've always wanted to get. So Elizabeth Colbert, I don't know that listeners of this podcast would need any introduction, but she wrote The Sixth Extinction. She wrote Notes from a Field Catastrophe. She won the Pulitzer Prize. She's a longtime staff writer for The New Yorker. She is, uh, when it comes to writing about science and climate change and the fate of the world, there's no one better than her. So I was very, very excited to talk to her. Did it live up to your expectations? Yes. Uh, And also, I think a thing that a lot of people wonder about her, and she does get asked this a lot, is sort of, how does she feel about the fate of the world? And I feel like her answer to that question, I'm not going to tell you that it's going to be uplifting for you, but it didn't disappoint in terms of how thoughtful she is about it.
1: Before we end this introduction, I'd be in remiss if I didn't mention MailChimp. They bring us this show. They make email newsletters. Well, you make the email newsletter with their help. Um, they've got all kinds of great stuff that I didn't know about until I was poking around. Like You can uh, have a landing page uh, made by them that is also just a place uh, where people sign up for your email newsletter. You know what you can do now What's with that? MailChimp? Send a postcard. Oh, I saw that. Can we do? This? Can we send everyone on the long form mailing list a postcard? <laughs> what, what delightful thing will they think of next? We got to get on that postcard thing. But for now, here is Evan
0: with Elizabeth Colbert.
2: Elizabeth Colbert, welcome to the Longform Podcast.
3: Thanks. Thanks for
2: having me. <laughs> when you say having me, we are, uh, we're in an unusual studio. I mean, I guess it's by New York standards, not a tiny hotel room.
3: But no, it's a reasonable size hotel room by New York standards, yeah. <laughs>
2: um, in kind of anticipation of an event that you have tonight, um, that's what brought you to New York. And I noticed that the topic was immortality. Yeah. But it occurred to me just looking at it and seeing that you're sort of invited to talk about immortality that I saw that you gave this Jonathan Schell lecture in the last year or so that was about the quote-unquote the fate of the earth and that you're a person that gets asked to come talk about humanity the fate of humanity the fate of nature which at uh, first I'm just curious how that feels
3: yeah I definitely feel as often above my pay grade you know I'm a I'm a journalist and big Jonathan Schell fan, fan of the original Fate Fate of the Earth and was asked to do it by Rick Hertzberg and couldn't say no. But it's not a a topic that I typically really want to pontificate about. Um, As a journalist, you know, you always hide behind other people, right? The Mm -hmm. people that you're interviewing. I would have much preferred to, you know, go around and ask a bunch of people than just sort of start rattling on about it. So it was a hard one. That was a hard one, actually.
2: Well, I wanted to kind of start way back in your career to kind of find out how you got to be the person that people invite to talk about the fate of humanity. Because I know that you worked at the Times, but I don't, I didn't really, in doing some research, find that much about sort of how you got into journalism originally. So, I mean, obviously, I'm very curious if you, I know you grew up partly in New York City, if you were like an nature interested kid or if you had interest in science and nature or you had interest in literature and where did that sort of start for you?
3: Well, I actually grew up outside the city in Westchester. I was born in the city in the Bronx, but we, like a lot of families, and I, as soon as I started school, my parents moved to Westchester and um, I, you know, grew up, I edited the high school newspaper, the Mamaroneck High School newspaper. I was always interested in, I think journalism... I've always seen it as a way to, you know, meet interesting people, you know, sort of like that old joke about the army, go interesting places, meet interesting people and, you know, not kill them, but talk to them, (laughs) interview them. And it's kind of a, you know, vicarious life. And that appealed to me, even as as a young person, you know, I was going to go places and talk to people. And I actually grew up very much in, you know, the great days of, you know, Woodward and Bernstein. I'm a Mm -hmm. child of of Watergate. I still remember watching Richard Nixon resign on TV, so I'm just old enough to have that been a formative experience. And then when I graduated college, I was going to study literature. Actually, I studied literature in college, uh, German literature. I had a fellowship to go pursue German literature in Germany. (laughs) <laughs> pursue uh, the study. Of yes, some, yes some exactly. Uh-huh. exactly. And I entertained, you know, going on to graduate school in German literature. But as soon as I got to Germany, I was in, in Hamburg, I uh, realized I didn't want to do that. I started freelancing, stringing. I, I was a stringer for the Times. I was a stringer for Newsweek, actually. Um,
2: How did you make that happen from being in a literature it, grad school yeah. to that?
3: You know, you just show up. I mean, I, I would still advise young people who want to get into journalism to, you know, 99% is just being there. And I was there and it happened to be a moment when the U.S. was actually putting Pershing missiles in um, Germany and there were a lot of protests and they just needed people out on the streets. I remember being out on the street during some kind of scary protest with the German police marching around in riot gear and stuff. But, you know, it's very, it wasn't glamorous work particularly, it was just you fed. Uh, that's the way a lot of stories were put together then and are still put together now with stringers. And in those days, you know, you didn't get any byline credit. You just fed to the correspondent. And, uh, Uh you know, it was... I'm going to be frank, so I don't even remember if they paid me. Um, (laughs) But then, you know, I caught the bug. It was. This was a lot of fun. It was an excuse to be in the middle of a protest, to be somewhere where you were unwanted. I kind of liked that part too. And I managed to get a bunch of bylines in the Times, eventually travel section. I remember I wrote a travel piece, which in my memory began, it was about eel soup. And in my memory, the first line is oh, waiter, what's this eel doing in my soup? But I don't know if that's really <laughs> how it started. Anyway, and I got a job, uh, as a copy person at the New York Times when there were still copy people.
2: That's a rewriter or a or a copy editor kind of
3: No, it's way it's way way lower down the totem pole than that. It comes from the days when New York Times reporters typed on typewriters mm. <laughs> on what was called an eight-part book and that was just a sheaf of carbon paper, right? So copy, it was a copy boy originally. You yell copy, the copy boy would take it, divide the sheaf into, you know, one went to makeup, one went to the editors, blah, blah, blah. Now, by the time I got to the Times, it was an already an antiquated term because they were computerized, There were uh. no copy. But we were still called copy people. We sorted the mail we did. We were absolutely bored out of our minds. We were very competitive with each other. And there was an understanding that some of us would get jobs and, and most of us would not. So it was very, you know, everyone was always looking over their shoulder.
2: Oh, wow. Um, and you had also, you had already done reporting. So you went from having done reporting to then doing this job.
3: That, yeah, but I don't want to exaggerate my, I mean, I was a kid and uh, I had, you know, managed to get a couple bylines in the Times, a couple bylines in Newsweek by sheerly, as I say, by dint of having been there, you know, just being there is. In Germany, for example, for the fortieth anniversary of D-Day, I happened to be there. They sent me out. I spoke German. I they found someone for me who this was Newsweek that had been on the beach at D-Day. I have still have very vivid memories oh, of wow. interviewing him. Um, so I was in, you know, I was just there, and that worked out for me.
2: And do you know any of the what happened to any of the other copy, quote unquote, boy people? Like, did a lot of them go on to be successful journalists?
3: Yes, I mean, quite a number of people who are more or less in my cohort are you know very successful journalists now um, i think david sanger was a probably a copy i maybe he came on a slightly higher elevated position right around just a little bit before me uh, todd purdom scott bronstein who's now at cnn so you know people some people stayed at the times most are now gone but a couple are still there and some are in journalism, you know, all over the place. And
2: w- do you know what it was that got you that next job?
3: Well, it's funny that, that you asked that because I always thought that it had been the at those days, Germany was divided, it, the bureau was in Bonn, and that the Bonn bureau chief, who was Jim Markham, who's a very nice guy who... I always thought he had gotten me the job, helped me get the job, because I sort of put him down as a reference. And then years later, I met him in New York, and I I thanked him for helping me, and he said he hadn't. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know. I think it was a low-level job. It wasn't like they were hiring you for anything except to sort mail, which, you know, I I really was qualified to sort mail. Um, <laughs> So it was no great, you know, it was no great accomplishment to get that job in those days. Nowadays, the, those jobs simply don't exist, you know. But in those days, yeah. it was, I, you know, I, I felt very lucky to get it, but it wasn't like, it was just the first foot in the door kind of thing.
2: Yeah. And did you did you feel like a natural reporter? I mean, we always have people on, some people who are very shy and still, even though they have all kinds of accomplishments in journalism, they still don't like to knock on those doors or make those like introduce themselves, where did you fall in sort of personality-wise approaching reporting?
3: That's a really good question because at the in those early days, you know, there were sort of these little stations that you had to go through and you had to write, right? So you had to also be getting into the uh, newspaper. And there used to be, once again, a lot of your listeners are too young to even remember this, but there used to be a second part of the. The Times was so fat on Sunday with so many ads. That there was a second part of the front page of the section, just to do like the bra ads from you know Macy's, and on the side, a column that ran down the side was called a gutter, and a story that ran on top. Let's say it was like a three-quarter page ad, and you had to have stick a story on the top. It was a shelf, and we we the copy people competed to sort of write these stories, unbyline stories that ran in that section. So that was sort of how you made it to the next level wow. and and then when you became a sort of cub reporter rookie reporters or probationary reporter you got you know the worst possible assignments so right. you know i remember um you know being on uh there was a, a guy he was sort of the political boss of queens and he had tried to kill himself and he there was like literally a, a suicide watch in front of his you know, someone was stationed. This is common resources the paper had at that time, and and so some poor person had to like sit there all the time. You know, was he gonna, I don't know, come out on the lawn and stick a knife in his chest? I don't really know, but <laughs> we were there. We were there all the time. You were gonna capture the and moment. It was so tedious and so cold. Actually, I remember it was like we would just, um, and that was a kind of assignment you drew and I I was pretty ambivalent for quite a long time like is this really you know do I really want to spend my time sitting in someone's driveway you know lordly you know pruriently waiting hoping you know is that something awful is going to happen so I definitely had um long 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 periods of doubt <laughs> <laughs> Which didn't abate for many, many years. Has that um,
2: <laughs> was there? Was there a, a level you got to, or a type of assignment you got that the doubt dissipated around?
3: Well, I got sent pretty soon after a couple years for reasons, once again, that were obscure to me. I've never known the reason why. I got sent to Albany, and I, you know, you might say you'd rather sit in a driveway in Queens than be in Albany. There's certain truth to that, but um, I. To cover the legislature, to cover Mario Cuomo. It was Mario Cuomo, mm. the days of Mario Cuomo. And he was a great character. And I joined the ranks of, you know, c- political reporters, once again, with no real training. What does it mean to train to be a political reporter? Um, so I just showed up and spent five years there. And I guess by the end of the five years, I, I was a reporter. This is what I was going to do.
0: Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put Evan and Elizabeth on hold for just a second and tell you a little bit about some sponsors that are making today's show possible. First up, Skagen. There's a story behind Skagen's Danish-inspired watches and jewelry. Skagen's inspired by the people who have become known as the happiest people on Earth, the Danish. When you take a closer look, it's easy to see why. The Danish culture focuses on what's meaningful, being part of a community, making time for relationships, and living in the moment, Scoggin's minimalist design reflects that less-is-more lifestyle. They've got men's and women's watches, jewelry, and even smart watches in a variety of styles. They create styles driven by their guiding principle, good design for better living. Scoggin products look right any time of day, anywhere in the world, now or 10 years from now. Because simplicity isn't just beautiful, it's versatile, and it's timeless. I myself am currently wearing a Skaggen watch. It's one of these smart watches, but it doesn't look uh, gooberish. You don't look like a goober wearing it. It just looks like a normal watch, except it can do all this other stuff because it is uh, intelligent. It's a smart watch. I'm wearing it right now. It's great great looking. Uh, nice leather band. Thank you, Skagen, uh, for the watch. Thank you, Skaggen, for the support. Visit Skaggen.com to get a special discount on your first purchase when you sign up for emails. That's S K A G E N.com. Thanks to them. And thanks also to Squarespace. You should turn your dream into a reality. And if you're going to do that, I suggest you do it with Squarespace. They make it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, or more. Squarespace is the tool for you with beautiful templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks. You can easily make a beautiful website yourself. Squarespace's powerful e-commerce functionality lets you sell anything online. And analytics help you grow your site in real time. Everything's optimized for mobile right out of the box. There's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. You don't need to know a lick of code. Everything just works. They've got amazing customer support. It's 24-7. It's award-winning. You're not going to hit a snag, but if you do, they got your back. Go turn your dream into a reality. Build that website. You know Squarespace is the best way to do it. Head to squarespace.com slash longform for a free trial. That's squarespace.com slash longform. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code longform. You'll get 10% off your first purchase of a website domain. Again, that's squarespace.com/longform. Offer code long form. Thank you, Squarespace. They have been with us for a very long time. We appreciate their support. Now let's get back to Evan and Elizabeth.
2: I was going back through your. Times pieces of which there are many, many. Oh my because God! You so many columnists. I don't even sure. remember a lot of them. I
3: see <laughs> them sometimes. I come across them. And it's like, did I write that? I have no memory of it. But there's especially
2: a, a kind of bulk of them in this sort of '90s pre-9/11 New York, where it's like early Giuliani and you know Al Sharpton and like all of these things that are happening in New York, and it made me wonder. I mean, I feel like the natural. Evolution at the times as someone goes, you know, to different departments in Metro and then maybe they become an editor and they just and you were there Capturing this moment and it feels just looking back like a natural step would be you would now become an editor at the New York Times And I'm wondering how that instead you ended up jumping to the New Yorker
3: You know, I I might well have done that except one day and I was I still once again remember it very vividly I was highly pregnant with twins at that moment. I got a call and it was it was David Remnick on the phone and that was that (laughs) just
2: and was it out of the blue was there any indication prior to that 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 call might be coming like oh i've had some conversations with them or just like there it was
3: yeah just like there was and actually when he first called when david first called I, i knew david because i worked with with esther fine his wife who worked at the times for many years and we were also colleagues and part of more or less the same cohort esther was ahead of me and in fact i did legwork for her uh, and she was a wonderful colleague. So I, I knew David through Esther, and he became the editor of The New Yorker, which, you know, we all thought was wonderful. And he called me, and then when he first called me, I thought, oh, he's nosing around for people he, he should hire. I will honestly say that i did not think the people he should hire was me but um (laughs) you
2: were going to give him just recommendations for
3: yeah like who who you know we you know we were slightly friendly as i say and so maybe he was like you know who's good at the times or whatever anyway i i don't know what i was thinking anyway and i i as i say i remember it very vividly and i remember he said something like this is the voice of fate or destiny or something like that (laughs) and I was like okay (laughs) here we go and that was that and that was that was uh, I I will say that like the Times is a great place to work and it's become a freer and looser place to work but it was much more stayed even at the time and everyone felt like they had something grand to say that it was hard to get into the pages of the Times and was looking to break out in some way and I, I certainly was. So while I was perfectly happy at the times, uh, I was really happy uh, to get the call from David.
2: And did you have, was there any sort of purview around it that you would come and write about this and that? I mean, obviously you knew a lot about New York City covering very intimately. Was there not a beat per se, but some area that you were supposed to be after?
3: Yes, absolutely. I was supposed to be writing a column called Around City Hall, Mm. which had been written by a woman named andy logan for many years it was a wonderful column and everyone thought andy was a man but andy was a woman and andy had grown quite old in that position and eventually had given up the column and the idea was to to revive it and i did that in fact but only for a few years
2: the first piece that I remember of yours one that really stuck with me in fact stuck with me so much that at this time I kept like a folder of magazine stories that I literally like cut out of magazines which I still have was this Kenneth Feinberg profile do you
3: remember this story oh my god yeah that
2: story really got to me somehow both as like a model for how profile could be done but also just how you sort of illuminated this very unusual character in this very dramatic like of all the nine eleven stories there are a million of them there was something about it that felt really I don't know to this day I can remember that story so I didn't really have a question except <laughs> that I that story and I'm curious oh, well, if you remember you. the process of reporting oh my
3: god it. absolutely completely and in that story he said something where he I think he re- referred to Staten Island as a third world country or something like mm-hmm. that And I knew as soon as he said that, I was like, oh, (laughs) my God, you you know, the way reporters do know, like when you get something that, you know, someone's going to regret having said. And I, you know, I had it on tape and, uh, you know, when it came out, that was the only thing everyone focused on in that story that actually made news. And, you know, it was one of those painful things that you go through as a reporter because it's like you feel you're both obligation and you'd be a crazy as a journalist not, not to print it yeah. but you knew that i knew that let's just say it wasn't going to make his day any easier or his work any easier uh and you know that was one of those very nerve-wracking so i certainly remember that piece yeah be- i mean in it... large part because of that and, <laughs> and also because to his credit, to his credit, and he's since gone on and you know doled out you know bazillions of dollars in other class action suits. Yeah, so he's very good at what he's he like does. The man that he's the they, man. He's the man. They call. He's it exactly, you know. And to watch someone with the sang froid, you know, I would. Uh, it was just a terrible time. You know, you're in, you're in the aftermath of you know everyone's father, brother, sister, mother get, having been killed, and people coming to him you know, asking for money. And it was just, you know, he was just extremely calm. And that's why he's so good at what he does. But it was very, it was very icky to watch a lot of it.
2: When you made that transition from newspaper reporting, where you're doing multiple stories a week, or sometimes as many as four or five, probably, to spending that kind of up close time and trying to capture not just the news of what, that person is doing, but capture their personality. Did you feel like you had to develop different skills or change the way you approached your work when you got to The New Yorker, or was it something that you just like, I'm waiting for this opportunity to do exactly this?
3: I used to feel like I had to start from scratch, really. Mm-hmm. That, that and the, I think the key is really the way, you know, a newspaper article was written even a quote-unquote feature story was written so that if you didn't read, you know, your goal was to get it on the front page, and if someone didn't read Beyond the Jump, then, and in those days, there's, you know, a Metro front page, so if someone didn't read Beyond the Jump, they still got the gist of the story. And that was how you wrote, and how you, and you also, you I want to say a lot of your effort at the times went, and perhaps less now, because the physical paper is not so important anymore, but it went into you know, selling that idea, right? So writing the lead so that when it went into the front page meeting, it would jump onto the front page. Now, when you are writing 5,000, 10,000 words, you do not want your reader <laughs> to get the gist of the story in three paragraphs. Au contraire. <laughs> you know, you need a way to draw them into the story but not make them drop it. And so those two, they're almost the obverse writing process of like how can I actually introduce enough suspense into this story so that you continue to read and you know that that took a pretty big mind shift
2: and when I looked at your time stories I couldn't find any stories about science I couldn't Mm -hmm. find any stories about Mm -hmm. research much less global warming and all the things that you're now known for writing about so I'm very curious (laughs) about the moment when those sort of opened up for you as stories that you thought, ah, I'm going to move into this area, and whether that was daunting because you hadn't done it before or whether it was somehow liberating that you didn't come from science writing or that kind of background.
3: Yeah. Well, what, what happened was, as I said, I was sort of hired to do this around City Hall column, and a couple of things converged at the same time, one of which was the, you know, 24-hour news cycle. So this, I went to the New Yorker in 1999 and web journalism and it was just starting really. And so journalism was changing really, really fast. And as a weekly, you know, the New Yorker had to figure out how to deal with that. And I think that this idea, you know, it used to be that These columns would be written and the events that they alluded to, you know, maybe you'd read about them before or whatever, but they were Andy Logan's take on them. And so even if they were a few weeks later, you know, you just read them because they were great stories and great pieces of writing. But it didn't seem really viable anymore to have something that people had, you know, that had been covered to death with like, you know, Rudy Giuliani was the mayor, and he, of course, everything he did got covered voraciously. And he was a great character and a great story. But you know, it was very hard to have something come out, you know, two, three, four weeks later that had been so thoroughly covered at the moment. And so I as a journalist and the magazine, as a publication, I had to kind of think how do we want to deal with this? And So I started to think, well, what are the stories? I mean, one of the mind shifts that had to take place when I went to The New Yorker, and it was hard to get my mind around right, was this is not going to appear tomorrow. It's not going to appear, you know, next week. It's (laughs) going to appear much later. So I started thinking, okay, what are the stories that are always going to be here? You know, and I have always been, even though I didn't write very much about environmental issues, I've always been interested slash concerned uh, about them say, ever since I was a kid. And I was very influenced actually by Bill McKibben's first book, The End of Nature, like mm-hmm. what 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 is going on here? And so when I started to think about what I, if I wasn't going to do this column anymore, what what was I going to do? And I started to think, you know, The New Yorker had this great tradition of environmental reporting and maybe that was a thing to do and i started to look around actually for a story on climate change at that point the u.s george w had just pulled the u.s out of the kyoto protocol yeah yeah. and i sort of had this idea in my head is global warming a big deal or not you know let's just solve that once and for all the new york is a great place to do that and let's just lay this issue to rest and I literally just started to call around looking for a story, a global warming story, and, and then September 11th intervened, and I got sort of sidetracked for a, a year or two, and then I came back to it, and I finally found this, someone told me about this little island off of Alaska that was basically disappearing owing to climate change, and I proposed to David a piece about climate change in the Arctic, and David Remnick came back and said, well, If you really think this is a big deal, uh, why don't you do a three-part series? And that is really how this all started. I did not have a three-part series in my head. (laughs) I had to go find it, but I said... I, I came back, it took a few days to think about it, and I came back and I said, Okay, if you you give me a year i'll give you a three-part series and that was our deal wow. and so
2: that is really what you want to hear from an editor
3: <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm gonna pitch yeah, you a story yeah how yeah. about three of those yeah so it was it was i mean you know be careful what you wish for it was um <laughs> really actually quite a painful process for me i'd never done anything like that before and i didn't have as i said i didn't have the three parts so it was like oh my god what have i gotten myself into but that sort of set me off on this journey and climate change just turns out to be such a huge issue, uh, that I think anyone who's covered the issue would say pretty much the same thing that you just feel like, well, I can't, what else could I write about after this? You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. So, um, it kind of took over in ways that I, I did not, I did not like set out to reinvent myself exactly, but it sort of happened.
2: And when you say it was a painful process, like when I read, Field Notes from Catastrophe, and I look at the sort of scope of examples and the places you go, like obviously in hindsight, it all looks kind of perfect. Like you picked all the right ones, but there were thousands of choices that went into that. Was the painful process getting your hands around the issue or trying to figure out where to go? How did you work through the difficulty of, okay, now I've got to do three parts. Yeah. Where do you start?
3: Yeah. I mean, I... You know, I took a lot of wrong turns. I had proposed this story about this one story about climate change in the Arctic because at that moment, at that particular moment, which was like 2003, 2004, scientists were just saying, you know, the signal is emerging from the noise in the Arctic. And you can look at things. One of the complexities with climate change is always, are we looking at climate change? Or are we looking at something that's within the scope of natural variability? And so people were just saying, okay, now we can say that we we are moving out of the envelope of natural variability we have moved sort of in a statistical sense beyond that and that was seen most clearly in the arctic and you know that is the and continues to be the real problem i guess i would say at the heart of reporting about climate change which is you know are we looking at climate change now more and more you can say definitively we are looking at climate change but Mm -hmm. at that moment uh, there were still a lot of people and very, you know, scientists who would say, well, I, I can't tell you. You know, we just don't have enough data. The scientists are extremely conservative. This is one thing that I can't emphasize enough in this. The dialogue around climate change is just, if you know anything about it, it is just completely in, insane. It will go down as world historically stupid and damaging and disastrous, catastrophic. I mean, I, I, the words, you know, fail me. But the idea that climate scientists are, you know, hysterical, and they're absolutely, they're incredibly conservative. (laughs) And I can tell you that because it took them years, you know, the data, they have very strict, you know, rules, what constitutes statistical significance. And until they had that, they were not willing to say, okay, we are looking at climate change. So Mm -hmm. it was quite hard to find good stories. And it's still quite hard to find good stories, you know, Florence was that climate change, you know, partly and partly it was a just, you know, a hurricane and partly it was a lot of people have moved into harm's way. And so all these stories are are quite complicated. And that, I think, prevents us from having, you know, we're going to wait until until it's too late. That's sort of clear right now. But anyway, yeah. that's that's another story that we could talk about.
2: Did you feel like I mean, there, there's these sort of different roles that people put up for someone who's writing about science or the environment. Like, are you a translator for science? Are you drifting into sort of advocacy or something? And did you feel like, I want these scientists to be more definitive? Like, it's very difficult to write about something where the answer is maybe, and maybe is very bad. Were you, did you find yourself trying to push towards stories that were more extreme?
3: Well, I think that the thing about climate science that's really hard to convey but maybe easy for me to convey in this context is the theoretical framework around climate change right co2 is a greenhouse gas been understood for 150 years you put more co2 into the atmosphere you will get a warmer climate completely impeccable unimpeachable science has been agreed forever so what have we been arguing about in a scientific from a scientific standpoint, well, what we've been looking at is, okay, how is that actually playing out, you know? And so on some level, that's irrelevant. We know, you know, if it doesn't happen this year, it's going to happen next year. If it doesn't happen next year, it's going to happen the year after. So we know this thing is only moving in one direction. But so the scientists, so you had two groups of people. One are the modelers and the theoretical people who are like, look, this is going to happen. And by 2050, this is going to happen by 2100, this is going to happen. And then you had the guys on the ground who I think had a certain territorialness, to be honest, mm. like we are not just listening to you guys, you sit at your computers in New York, we're out here in the Arctic. So there was a certain kind of, this is getting into the sociology of science, which is pretty interesting, unfortunately. But so these guys were saying, well, I will believe it when I see it You know, on my research plot, in my research. And for example, I went out um, into the field with a guy who studied permafrost, and he had a network of stations or whatever, and he he saw they were warming, you know, definitely. And but he was like, "Oh, I don't know," you know. He was he was still kind of agnostic. This is like 2003, 2004. What's going to happen? And just recently, I read him. You know, he's been taking the same measurements for another, you know, 12 years or whatever. And he was like, "Oh my fucking god!" You know, this is you know, a disaster. Uh, I was like, what was your first clue, Cheryl? You know, we all, you know, <laughs> but but people are always waiting for their own data to show it. That is how they respond.
2: Yeah, like it's not like the scientists are on team science exactly. and team science makes some sort of determination.
3: Exactly. And so this idea that scientists are some part of some cabal or conspiracy, absolutely on the contrary. Someone who they would love to pull down, you know, have this secret clue, I discovered X, that disproves all your models. But unfortunately, it just doesn't exist.
2: I've heard you talk a little bit about this. But in both books, reporting for both books, it feels like it's both these very weighty and in many ways depressing issues. But also, the reporting trips are kind of incredible. Like the places you've been and things you've seen are also seem really fun to me as a reporter. Just I would love to take that trip and go along with that research do you do you um do you experience that in the moment
3: oh yeah i mean i've been to amazing places in some of these reporting trips and some of which were you know quite miserable to be honest like going that trip with the scientist who was studying the permafrost it, it would rain most of the time we were up on the north slope of alaska you know in the rain hunched over you know taking permafrost readings um But it was still an amazing experience, and I have very vivid recollections of it. So I've had a great time, and that sort of gets back to, you know, originally why one gets into journalism, to lead this vicarious life. I'm not sure I would want to, you know, spend my life taking permafrost measurements, to be, you know, really (laughs) honest about it. But um, it was great to do for a week. It was really really interesting.
2: And do you sort of project... The knowledge that you have with scientists, like when you, when you go on one of these research trips, do you sort of try to ask questions like you don't know anything? Or, I mean, you obviously have been now been covering this a really long time. So it'd be hard to argue that you could go in and be like, what's that? What's this? Or do you try to demonstrate to them more often? Like, I know about this. I'm trying to get to a level deeper than what you would tell a naive person who is long with you
3: that's not doesn't turn out to really be an issue because usually when i'm out with someone we're talking about the pretty nitty-gritty of what they're doing a lot you know Mm. 90 percent of which will not make it into whatever i write because it's just too technical but for me to understand you know how x process or y process works you know no one is out there at this point saying is the world getting warmer? You know, that's not a question that we're asking anymore. So we're asking something else and we're asking something often pretty, I don't want to say obscure, but, you know, it's pretty specific to the site or to the... So every time I am starting, usually from, not from, you know, zero, but from 10 or 20 and there's still tons and tons of stuff to ask that I don't understand. As I say, some of which is pretty technical. So that... I haven't found that to really... I haven't had to play the naive. I often am pretty ignorant of what this person's doing.
2: Hmm. Once you had finished Field Notes on Catastrophe and you mentioned sort of once you start covering something like global warming, it's very difficult to then say, well, now I'm going to do what might seem slightly more trivial stories. So how did you then find a story as big (laughs) as, as that one?
3: Things come to you in a way. So after I wrote that series in the new yorker you know people came to me and said well you know you left out this big part of climate change or big part of what we're doing dumping billions of tons of co2 into the atmosphere also means dumping billions of tons of co2 into the oceans and that's ocean acidification so i wrote a couple pieces on that and then a couple things just came together this idea this group was pursuing this idea uh, that we're living in a new geological epoch, the Anthropocene. I wrote about that, mm-hmm. um, and then we had this terrible bat die-off in the Northeast. Suddenly, bats were dying right in my own backyard, and all these things kind of came together in this sort of cloud in my mind of like, how could I write about all of them? How could I write about, you know, climate change being actually just one of the ways that humans are changing the planet on what's often referred to on as a geological scale mm-hmm. um and that's sort of how the next book came into being
2: well so this leads me to probably the biggest question that i've been waiting to ask you for <laughs> a long time and it comes actually from ta coates who i've had on the podcast several times he's always he's saying s- you have to get elizabeth colbert on she's my favorite <laughs> oh, writer really? oh you have to God. get her on
3: well i'm he, he, well, he's a tremendous, tremendous writer. He's one of my favorite writers. So, we, so okay, so I, I think he deals
2: comments. with a similar question that you often do. And he said, if you ever have her on, in fact, I think this we even kept this in the podcast. If you ever have her on, I want you to ask her, does she think it'll make any difference when she writes, when she sits down to write, does she think this is going to change something? And so, do you?
3: That is a really really good question i think that i still uh i still believe in a place called hope no i still um (laughs) i still nurse that idea that in my heart of hearts that something that you write that there's some key to this all like we're all looking for the skeleton key that's going to unlock And people are going to go, oh, yeah, that, you know, that's why we have to do something. And um, so I, I don't want to say that I've completely dispensed with that. I think that that's what motivates most journalists. You know, like, I think this information is going to somehow make a difference. On the other hand, I have also, I have dispensed with a lot of that. You know, I mean, we are now so deep into all this that it's really... And the more you know about climate change and the numbers involved and the scale involved of what we need to do to really mitigate this problem, and you know that we're moving in the wrong direction. Right now, we're moving in absolutely the wrong direction. It's not like we're moving too slowly. We're actually moving in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to say, "Oh, well, I, I, you know, anything I write is gonna is gonna turn this battleship around." So I sometimes say that i continue to write you know more or less out of well out of out of two possible impulses i suppose one is that sort of bear witness impulse um you know william bowman has these two volumes out these thousand pages right each Mm -hmm. and he has framed them as like in the future people want to know what was going through their minds you know and so that that's part of it like in the future people might you know want to know you know what did a coral reef look like what were people saying you know in the year 2018 or whatever um and part of it is sheer sort of spite you know i mean i'm going to keep writing you're going to keep ignoring it <laughs> but i'm still going to keep writing you know uh so there are all of those things are mixed up and i i don't have a clear answer as to why I continued along a path that is, you know, is painful and frustrating and, and you know, on some level, you know, that your readers don't want to read.
2: And a sort of ancillary question to that is, I have the paperback version of Field Notes and you have, you added material to that, you know, a decade later, which was mostly sort of depressing, but there's a sort of part in there where you say something like, you know, I get asked over and over, you know, what should people do? And I'm curious about how it feels to have the expectations of people on you, both in terms of what they should do and also wanting you to say that it's going to be OK.
3: Yeah, I really I mean, you know, I do give talks sometimes, you know, to like usually colleges, universities. And I, I always say at the front, you know, I am not giving you an answer here because I, I don't have it. And I I do feel, and I'm sure that my colleagues who cover climate change also feel like there is a lot of, you know, kind of like, don't just tell me about the problem, tell me about the solution. And as I say, the solution is what people don't want to hear about. The solution is, you know, radical surgery. And so everyone is playing this game. And that includes very well-intentioned people wanting to move the conversation forward, but not wanting to say okay that that's just a drop in the bucket you know so you have all these people out there talking about change your diet change your this you know yes all those are you know some of them could be helpful but mm-hmm. you know the scale of what's needed is is so huge and you know when i come to new york and i i actually live out in sort of a depopulating <laughs> part of the world when you come to new york and you see the Oh my God, you know, there's eight million people here. There's there's all this infrastructure. It all has to be completely, you know, redone. It's really, really hard to imagine how that's gonna happen and if fast enough Or so it's so daunting. And I don't feel like I really don't want to take that on, to be honest. I don't want to. There are a lot of people whose job it is who get paid you, you know, and who are thinking about it, who are very smart. You know, and they have some very, the idea that everyone comes to, the only thing that anyone can think of that really will make enough of a difference is to put a price on carbon, right? So you emit carbon, you're going to pay for that, and that's going to induce a lot of changes in our economy because it's an economy-wide change that's needed on such a profound level. And that's why you are seeing this fight to the death. We are in a fight to the death between the very, very significant economic interests in fossil fuel infrastructure, which is not even just the coal companies and the oil companies and the utilities, just to name a few, but everyone who's embedded, we're all embedded in this fossil fuel economy and we have to radically change that. And so there is going to be, you have to build a new economy. That economy doesn't exist yet. There's no constituency for it yet. So we need people who are invested in that future. People often say, you know, it's going to be young people. I hope it is young people, because they're going to, you know, our kids are going to really, really feel the impacts. We are already going to. I used to think, oh, I won't, no, won't be around to see some really bad impacts, but yeah. now I'm not so sure about that anymore.
2: I mean, here are the fires. Here are the, some of it. Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's it's
3: an August day. We're in October. Yeah, yeah. this you it could be in August.
2: I have a sort of similar question about the species extinction, which is that. In a way, like that information is something that people could find out. Like you could find out how many species are going extinct. Like someone could go look it up. It's not. But then you've gone out and sort of conveyed that at a very specific storytelling level. And that has a powerful impact on the reader when they read it. But I feel like there's a chance that a lot of readers are also like, oh, that's horrible. That frog, that beautiful frog. And then, you know, they go on with their daily lives but you have to live with it for a longer period of time. I'm just curious how that weighs on you being constantly exposed to this knowledge that most of us probably spend our time trying not to think
3: about. Well, you know people say how do you keep from getting depressed and my answer is basically i don't keep from being depressed now you know i'm probably a naturally depressed person so maybe the the two found you know we found each other <laughs> form follows function you know um but um you know it's a very very gloomy picture and the only thing that i sort of take, you know, solace from, I suppose, is, is when you look at it in the larger scale, long-term scale or whatever, you know, we humans have been at this for a long time. And the megafauna extinction, When you know, I, I think it's pretty clearly was driven by humans, you know, 10,000 years ago. So mm-hmm. it's not like we just figured out how to drive things extinct. We actually have been doing it for quite a while. Um, now, I think we are, I think it's true Unfortunately, there are so many of us and our technologies are so powerful and we're changing the world so dramatically and so fast that we really are getting to potentially to a crisis point. I don't know when that will arrive. I don't know exactly how it will arrive, um, but I, I fear uh, that it may arrive where some of these systems that we still still depend on, even though we don't appreciate that, um, especially when we're sitting here in Manhattan will fail in some big way. And um, I, I don't know, you know, people have lived for also for a long time since, you know, before I would, was born with the specter of nuclear annihilation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to go back to the fate of the earth and Jonathan Shell. So, you know, we've, we've lived under this cloud of self-destruction uh, for a long time. We're still here, 7.6 billion of us. So what the future holds, I really... I really don't know. I am radically skeptical about that. But I I, I do know that it's going to be, you know, it's going to be hotter. I can tell you that. How is that?
2: Do you ever feel the pull of activism? Like Bill McKibben's been out there, you know, getting arrested and you know, yeah. he sort of went a little more in that direction. Yeah. I'm sure any of those organizations would take you or you could start your own at this point. Do you ever feel the impulse towards that?
3: You know... Sometimes I feel like would it be more useful than writing another story, you know, as you say, just to chain yourself to uh, to the White House gates and get arrested. Um, And I really admire what Bill has done tremendously. Um, I don't. I think, you know, when people ask me what they should do, I, I say you have to find out what you what motivates you and what what you want to do on some level and try to do the best. You can on that path, and that—that's sort of the way I feel. I'm—I don't—I'm not an activist. I don't actually feel like I am a great motivator of other humans, you know. Um, and so I just, you know, and you could say that's a cop out, and I'm—I'm I'm willing to entertain that idea, you know. I—I I write about it. You do what you want. I don't think I would make a good activist. I'm—I'm kind of impatient. I'm kind of uh, with other people, so. I don't like meetings etc cetera, etc cetera. so mm. uh, I found a good you know niche for myself and uh, but I certainly if someone asked me like you know you're I'm a young person should I you know become a journalist or should I get out there and become an activist I would say you've, you've got to make that call I think that the, certainly Lord knows the world needs more activists it probably doesn't need more journalists so how's that <laughs> so I have a couple more <laughs> sure
2: <laughs> one is just um, you won the Pulitzer Prize, the Sixth Extinction got a sort of a level of attention that found you on TV, on The Daily Show, you know, in big places. And it makes me wonder if uh, now when you do reporting, do people sort of see you coming in a different way or want something else out of you or have the expectations changed around subjects when you approach them?
3: That really depends. Um, definitely. Inside the world, you know, there's definitely a world of people thinking about, you know, climate change. And definitely when I am a part of that world. um, But, you know, people, you know, when they're explaining their process or whatever, you know, the fact that they may or may not have read, you know, what I've written (laughs) in the past. Does it really matter? Mm -hmm. You know, not wildly, but definitely on some level, you could argue it A, opens doors, or but B, maybe changes your relationship a little bit and in ways that are both helpful and not helpful and sometimes hard to even parse that myself. But, you know, most of the world that you go into, no one knows or cares, you know, who you are and what you've written and in the past and a lot of the places I go, you know, The New Yorker is not even a concept. And so, you know, who cares? <laughs> sure. So not wildly, you know, a, a little bit. I do think that that on some level, once again, if I were doing things again, you know, maybe I would switch topics again. Um, But here I am. And this one seems too big to just sort of let go.
2: And have you already grabbed on to like, a bigger version, the next, like <laughs> un-
3: the universe. <laughs> yeah. Well, I s- often feel like I've written myself a little bit into a corner. You know, I, I, you know, like what what do you take on after that? And I have not entirely answered that question. Has that?
2: Yeah. And so, last one, I just I don't even actually know how to formulate this as a question, but I mean, you've been writing some about the current administration, what's happening in the Interior Department, the EPA, and a lot of this stuff is happening almost under the radar just because everything else is so insane. But, you know, I was reading some of the just news stories that you wrote, like about even what could happen to the Clean Power Plan if uh, if Trump is elected. And then it's like exactly down the line of what could have happened has happened. And do you feel like you want to sort of like follow that and like monitor what's happening and sort of reveal that? either in this sort of, let's make a historical record of what's happened here, or in the kind of like, let's expose so people will know, or that you want to move away from that, because there's no yeah hope in it.
3: at the yeah. moment. Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. I'm actually quite torn about that. And you could spend your whole life, unfortunately, every single day, howling into the wind about what they're doing. And I think people are writing about it. Absolutely. And, you know, and the times and the washington post they they all have some great people on this beat and breaking things that they you know there are a lot of things that the administration is doing openly and there's a lot of things that they're not doing openly and they've just installed i mean many people have made this analogy you know that the fox guarding the chicken coop they've just installed you know people have a checklist from the oil companies and the coal companies and they're just checking off their list we didn't like this regulation we didn't like that regulation it goes beyond even just undoing what the Obama administration has done. We're, we're, we're back, you know, pre-Obama. <laughs> so it's really, you know, challenging some things that have been established in the regulatory framework for a long, long time. It's going to be litigated up the wazoo. It's why the Kavanaugh appointment is actually one of the most, you know, I think, consequential aspects of it is he's terrible he's he, he's very consistently ruled against environmental regulations and he will do that at the supreme court so now you'll have this situation where the utility companies the coal company whatever will know well let's just take it to the supreme court and they'll void it so we are in a desperate situation and that is going to last as long as this court is split five four and so it's very depressing i mean thinking out into the future is really really you know it's hard to see your way out out of this, even if the company country electorally kind of wakes up to, well, that's not really what we want, you're going to have this litigation that's going to go on for decades. So it's really uh, gruesome, and I think that it absolutely should be written about every single day. I'm not sure that I am the person to do that. I'm not in D.C., you know. Mm-hmm. But I, I also do wrestle with that, you know, is there some way that I could contribute to bringing that story, you know, home to people.
2: Do you ever think about writing a story that's just like, it's too late?
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I on some level, I, I've written versions of that story <laughs> yeah. many times. I guess it says, that's true. Yeah. But, you know, it's never too late. It's too late to do X, Y, or Z, and it's not too late to do, you know, Q, R, S. I mean, that is the situation we're in, to be honest. Yes, it's too late for some things, but it's never too late to alter this trajectory hopefully you know there are there is a lot of uncertainty here the one question that has never been exactly nailed down and won't be until ex post facto is what's called climate sensitivity and that is you dump x amount of co2 into the atmosphere what is the temperature change that you get out ultimately Mm. after you know 100 years after 200 years after a thousand years and there's a wide range of you know just statistical uncertainty there in the models and uh if it's at the low end, we may skate through. And if it's at the high end, you know, we're screwed. Um, so we have to act with the hope, you know, that we can avoid the worst. And But we have to act. You know, we can't just like la la la, that, which is what we're doing.
2: Well, I'm grateful that we have you writing about it and also for taking the time to go on the podcast.
3: Oh, well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
2: That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, your co-host. Thank you so much to Elizabeth Colbert for coming on the show. Thanks to my co host Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, and to our great editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, and to our intern, Tyler McCloskey, and our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. We will see you next week.